We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Adam Pearson is an actor, presenter and campaigner. He is also one of the few people who can claim to have Scarlett Johansson's personal email address after co-starring with her in Jonathan Glazer's extraordinary 2013 film, Under the Skin. The title is appropriate. Pearson is one of the funniest, most charming men I've ever met. Full disclosure, I interviewed him over fish and chips for a Sunday newspaper seven years ago and he made me howl with laughter intentionally. His attitude to life is upbeat and dry-witted. This is all the more remarkable when you know that Pearson has an incurable genetic condition called neurofibromatosis, which causes benign tumours to grow along the nerves. In his case, the tumours are mostly on his face and they have severely affected his physical appearance since the age of five. Pearson's twin brother, Neil, has the same condition, but with a difference. He suffers from memory loss, but has no visible symptoms. Neurofibromatosis has meant that Pearson has been the focus of bullying and discrimination from a young age, yet it has never held him back. Today, Pearson works in television production and was one of the people behind Channel 4's The Undateables. He was nominated as UK Documentary Presenter of the Year at the 2016 Grierson Awards and even appeared on a 2019 edition of Celebrity Mastermind, winning the episode with his specialist subject, WWE. I don't really care what strangers think, he once said. You own it. Otherwise, it crushes you. Adam Pearson, welcome to How to Fail. Oh, that was lovely. You should, you should just follow me around and say things like that all the time. I can give you a laminated printout and you can put it in your pocket, but it is all true. And I really remember that interview seven years ago. This is where you say, oh, I've never met you before. No, no, I, I remember it as well. I think you, you had a go at me because I made you write booyah at the end of the whole thing. I think that was the tweet you went, Adam Pearson, you're the only man that's made me write booyah 
at the end of an article. Yeah, transcribing the tape was fun because, yes, putting actual letters to the phrase booyah is quite an exercise. But it's really interesting that you say that about not caring what strangers think, that you have to own it, otherwise it crushes your spirit. Yeah. But how long did that take you to learn? Or oh, were- years. Yeah. Years. And I think it's something you learn, like, like anything, you learn to get things right by getting things wrong. And I think when we talk about things like failure, incorrectly we polarise it and view it as the opposite of success. Mm. Whereas I say it is a journey toward success. And if you've never failed, you've never tried, I think. Very on brand for this podcast. And I have to say that actually this podcast has started recording half an hour late because I forgot it was happening. So the failure in this instance is all of mine. And thank you very, very much for being so patient with me. (laughs) How do you feel about failure more broadly in your life, what do you consider to be a failure? Hmm, good question. And I think, I think failure is an okay thing to do. And I think it's how we learn. And we, we learn by getting things wrong. And I think rather than try and, and shun it or avoid it, I think once one can get their head around that it is, in fact, an inevitability of the human experience and learn to embrace it, but more importantly, learn from it. If you're feeling the same way over and over and over, I think that might be a problem. Whereas if you try, fail, pick yourself up, kind of brush the dirt off your shoulders and carry on and and learn from it and and take it as an experience, I think that's, in a really perverse way, quite a beautiful thing to be able to be able to do. In the introduction, I talk about your condition. How does it feel when an introduction like that always mentions it? Well, it would be weird not to, wouldn't it? Because it is such an important thing. And in a weird way, it's kind of defined my existence. And it's also part of the reason why I get the opportunities I do. It's, it's In a weird way, it's open more doors than it, it's closed. And something that on the face of it, whether you're talking from like a medical, social or philosophical point of view, that could have been designed for destruction, has, in a very kind of amazing way, made me who I am. Tell me a bit about Under the Skin, the film that I mentioned there, which was an extraordinary piece of work. If you haven't seen it, please go and see it right now and also read the book that it was based on. And it's about an alien (laughs) played by Scarlett Johansson, hot alien. And she has an encounter with you which humanises her for the first time for the audience. Would you tell us about the encounter first? So completely. In the film, she is tasked, she's on a mission to go and pick off kind of wayward men who no one will miss and, and send them meat from them back to her, her home planet. That's pulled out a lot more in the book. The book goes into it in way more detail than the film. And she starts off quite kind of cold and, and callous and very much on a mission, no blinkers. And then my character is the first person that just isn't really interested in the whole sexuality of what's going on, just is out on the cover night to do his shopping, wants to get to Tesco's. And I think that is what kind of humanises her and the tone of the whole film changes at that point. And it's a really poignant scene. One of the most beautiful and profound bits is that Scarlett Johansson's character does not comment on your face. No. But comments on another part of your body. Yeah, my hands. And that's a completely kind of 
I, I think improved. Um, we, myself, Jonathan Glazer, and, and Scarlett met a couple of times before filming to talk about it and the character and, and lead me in kind of gently. When your first acting gig is a Jonathan Glazer film with Scarlett Johansson, you got to do really well or really badly. And the jury was out at the time. It turns out really well. Yay. And my mother has always said, I've got very nice hands. Or oh, you've got hands like my father, Adam. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And that's why I like the film. It's really interesting in what, what does a world look like without prejudice or without knowledge or if someone rocked up on Earth today as like a 35-year-old having had no media exposure, how will they find the world around them? How will they interact in it? And how will they try and find their place in it? And I think that's something that echoes throughout that whole film and in particular that one scene. You also had to do a nude scene with her. Yeah. <laughs> You told me when we first met that she had a filthy sense of humour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Well, not, not filthy as in crass, but quite dark. I like people that have a dark sense of humour. I think if you don't laugh and joke about things, then you'll cry about things. So, yeah, we kind of went back and forth. The banter was very much there. And I, I think humour is a very good way of communicating with people and breaking down barriers anyway i think laughter is one of the very few things that we as humans do communally and if you go and watch a stand-up gig you'll laugh more when you're in a room with other people and if you watch the exact same thing on your own on dvd i hold up comedy as one of the purest forms of communication humans can have you mentioned there when we were talking about the film that idea that if someone had not been exposed to media didn't have any clear ideas of what humans should look like, how they would react. And it's interesting to me because you are of an age where I guess your very early years, there was no social media. No. So how different do you think your experience as Adam Pearson would have been had there been no social media and no internet all of your life? It's a double-edged sword, social media and the internet. I'm a big fan of social media. I use it a lot... I've had to get it wrong to learn to get it right, much like everyone. And I think it's a tool and a weapon to be mastered and wielded with great care. If it hadn't been there, if it wasn't there now, I think we'd all be a lot more insular than we are. It's made communication ridiculously easy, almost to the point where we take it for granted or have forgotten how to do it. Though I do feel for the younger generation in a sense of that you're being constantly bombarded by images of how you're supposed to look or what you're supposed to be or how you're supposed to act by both big corporations and then so-called influencers, which is, I loathe that term so much. Mm -hmm. I'm a social media influencer. Like, who are you influencing? And how are you influencing them? I think that's the question that we're not asking. You could put a photo of yourself wearing an, an amazing dress looking absolutely good. And yes, you're influencing what is mainly young girls. It's just unfortunate that the influence you have is making them feel inferior. And how does it make you feel? Or can you insulate yourself from that because of everything that you've been through? Does it make you feel, I don't look a certain way? I'm quite media literate, so it kind of just bounces off me. I think I've learned through my own personal experience, but also being in, in the industry and being around I can delineate between what's real and what's fake, what's reality and what's advertising, or for want of a better term, posturing. So I'm quite savvy. What, what advice would you give people who are less savvy, who feel 
overwhelmed by that kind of messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, get Sally, and I think it's also completely fine to have have a detox. And I often give advice. I say to young people because I do a lot of school assemblies. A lot of my friends are teachers, so I get roped into a lot of things which I completely love doing. I love talking to young people and giving them the benefit of my experience because I was a crap young person. I was an awful, awful teenager. And I think if social media had been around when I was that age, I'd have been a worse teenager. I think have a detox. Have a complete media detox. Take a week. Don't look at your Twitter. Don't look at your Facebook. Don't look at your Instagram. Give the reality TV a rest and just go home, read a book, and talk to your family. And then once you switch back on, realise how easily sweet you are. That's very interesting, yeah. And because in in that week, you'll learn who you are and you'll also learn who you're not. Mm. And I think learning what you're not is a crucial part of learning what you are. And then you'll realise what you're taking in might not reflect the norms and values you actually have. You say there that you were a terrible teenager and we're going to get onto that in a second because it ties into your first failure. What do you think of the person that you are now? I've done all right, I think. I can look myself in the mirror and be like, yeah, you got this. I'm very fortunate, you know, my parents are great, my brother's great, I've got a good circle of friends around me who love and respect me and who I equally love and respect. And they've all got kids who adore me, so I'm I'm now emotionally tied into these relationships to the point where even if I wanted to walk away, I couldn't, because I'm I'm kind of Adam that knows magic tricks and has Nintendo and will walk the dog and they can't be bothered and oh, it's, I'm happy enough. It's interesting though that when you answered that question, you said to me, I can look in the mirror and say you've got this. Mm-hmm. Because we've talked before about how much of culture uses a kind of semaphore of visuals to convey something. Mm -hmm. So Bond villains are often shown with scars on their faces and it's seen as a negative. And what was really beautiful about your performance in Under the Skin was that it completely subverted that norm. But talk to me a bit about that, about how culturally we've seen quote-unquote disfigurement. Yeah, the, the Bond one's really interesting because this is the third disfigured Bond bad guy in a row now, which is a tad lazy and a tad um, kind of shorthandy. And the language they use, I also find really, I'm not going to say offensive, I think it would be alarmist to say it's offensive because it, it's just words at the end of the day. And this kind of outrage culture where everyone just ends up shouting at each other but no one ends up talking to each other i find remarkably unhelpful but i go oh yeah he's scarred and villainous or a scar made for evil and it's one of the very few areas where it goes unchecked and i, I imagine that if one day when it happens when idris elba gets the bond roll I don't think that they'll start using different adjectives to describe James Bond when it's being played by a, a black actor. I don't think he's going to one day go from being suave and sophisticated to sleek and streetwise. Mm. I just find it really interesting and frustrating. But I also don't want to go too far the other way and put a blanket ban on it because I think that also restricts creativity. And I'm also campaigning myself out of work. <laughs> 
that's interesting as well because I know that you said in the past that you would love to be a Bond villain. Absolutely. But, but you'd be playing it. I think another thing that worries me is that idea that you have someone who doesn't live with a condition such as yours, who's been given makeup to look a certain way in a way that you wouldn't do with any other form of being. No. Again, that's fascinating. I was watching it. I was actually watching it this morning. Joe Rogan was interviewing Robert Downey Jr. about Tropic Thunder. It's a film where it's Robert Downey Jr. Jack Black. It's hilarious. It, it holds this kind of mirror up to the hypocrisy of of Hollywood and what you can and can't do and where, how the virtue signalling and the actual output don't actually collaborate in any way. There's no equivalency there. And that would never get made now. Like, just the, the, the backing up the liberal use of the word retard from Simple Jack. And the narrative is always, oh, it's acting, mate, kind of get over it. Because essentially the argument is a disabled actor playing a disabled character isn't acting. And there are two problems with that argument. A, it doesn't equate elsewhere. Female actors playing female characters isn't acting. It's a ridiculous statement to make. And also it boils disabled actors and disabled people down to just their disability and ignores the whole other some of their parts. I'm more than just my disability. I'm a son, I'm a friend, I'm an employee. I'm Adam fucking Pearson, goddammit. And it's a really interesting tipping point, I think, we're at now in terms of the creative arts and where disability fits into that. Your first failure is that you bombed at secondary school. And I want to come on to that, but I also want you to take me back to five-year-old Adam Pearson, Mm -hmm. one of two boys. Your brother, twin, is called Neil. And what happened when you were five? So I was dicking about in my room. I was probably, I was doing something I shouldn't have been. Like, kind of the details escaped me because I was like, but I reckon I was probably pretending to be Hulk Hogan. And I took this, like, massive swan dive and then bounced my head off, bounced my throat off the corner of the windowsill and screamed. And my parents came in, checked the windowsill, checked on me because priorities. And, you know, we put, and it came up in, in a bump, like, as it normally would, right? And so we put some ice in it. We were like, okay, don't do it again. And naturally, um, fast learner, failure, all that jazz, did it again. And it came up in a bump again, but this time it didn't go down. And there were other things going on as well. I had these um, light pigmentations on my skin called cabriolet marks, French and milky coffee, because that's the colour they are when I'd eat one half of my face to go bright red, where you could literally draw a line down the middle of it to um, delineate. And eventually all these things combined got us to a diagnosis of neurofibromatosis, which back in the 90s, the NHS and diagnostics as a practice wasn't what it is now. So the doctor just literally read a definition out of a medical textbook, patting my mum on the hand, and I, was, I don't know how she didn't headbutt him. To this day, I don't know how she didn't kill that man. I'm glad she didn't, because I quite like having around. And then from that point, you just get on with it. You learn the system. You learn as much as you can about the condition. And you you armour up and you fight the battle. Did it get worse and worse? And does it continue to get progressively mm. worse? Yeah, so it's it progressive. So it's always going to be a thing that's ticking on. And you can go in and have the excess tissue removed in what they call debonking procedures. So in, in the same way that electric wires are acting plastic, 
your nerves are wrapped in cells called Schwann cells. And your condition means that these cells multiply exponentially. And you can go in and have as much as you can removed without compromising other things. Like there are muscles, nerves and blood vessels involved. So one can only be so heroic without doing more harm than good. And so I've had 38 ops now, I think. On your so, face? Yeah, on my face. 39 is in, in the schedule. And then I have this massive debate with my mum as to, is it crass and offensive to have a party for my 40th? No, absolutely not. And I hope I'm invited. Because I think it's quite dark and quite macabre yeah. and very Adam Pearson. Very Adam Pearson. But I think other people might find it really, really offensive. But like you said at the beginning, if you don't laugh, you cry. Yeah, totally. Is it painful? No, the condition isn't. No, 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 no. I mean, after surgery, you have a, a day of it not being fun because everything's a bit tight and it feels different. And, it, it, and sometimes it can move different if you go around the old communication triangle area. You have to move cups and cans to different places and relearn muscle memory and stuff. But you, I can normally handle that out in like a week. I'm like an old school. I'm a veteran of the game now. At this point, it's like a, a free rent, free food, free morphine, and you go home. Normally the same day now. You talk about it with eloquence and humour, but I can imagine it wasn't always like that. And it must have been really difficult having an identical twin who doesn't have it visibly. I, I don't think that would have been a healthy attitude to take because Neil very much had his own own struggles to deal with. And as much as it sucked to me having to go through it, it must have also sucked him having to watch it. And I think that's a very easy thing to forget when you're in, in the throes of, of the medical system. But my, my concern was always mum, dad and Neil, even going through it. I was like, I'm going to get through this. This is going to be fine. I'm in the hands of medical professionals and this will all be okay. I need to make sure that they're okay with all this as well because they're my support network if they fall away then i'm in big trouble did you ever or do you ever feel resentment at the condition no because i don't know how to how to do that if, if that makes sense i think it sounds incredibly bizarre to say but it also isn't going to change it it's going to be kind of wasted energy and wasted motion and I think once you allow that kind of resentment to kind of manifest, it's only a matter of time before it works its way out in the real world. It isn't going to work its way out on strangers or on inanimate objects. It's going to work its way out on the people that I love and care about. And I, I don't want to be that guy. I think we've got enough of those guys out there already in, in the ether and on the interwebs and what have you. It's not in my nature. It sounds really weird and maybe a bit arrogant. But I'm not that guy. Tell me about secondary school. Oh, God. Awful. Like, worst five years of my life. And it's only now looking back on it, I can be like, yeah, I've, I've ballsed up there. You ballsed up? I, yeah. I think I had to take part of the responsibility for those five years. I'll never say it was all my fault because it wasn't. I certainly could have handled myself a lot better over those five years. So you've cited it as a failure. Mm -hmm. What was happening? Were you being bullied? Oh, completely, yeah. Solid five years, to the point where you get so far in and you, you know who's going to say what, when they're going to say it, or what time, whereabouts it's going to happen. You can almost plan your schedule around it at that point. I was in the unfortunate 
situation where I, I was a lot smarter than the people bullying me. So it gets to the point where I'd just be like kind of blowing people up in the playground. Like they say something, I come back with something infinitely worse. Like kind of rendering the speech list and they go and tattle on me and then I get called in, I become the problem. And then I reckon they had my mum's car on AMPR at the time because they were forever driving up there and being told, oh, well, Adam did this, Adam said this. And we couldn't drive the point now that if just, people just left me alone to get on with my stuff, it wouldn't happen. Yeah, and, it sounds like <clears> you were being failed by teachers there. A little bit. But then I think two wrongs don't make a right. And I think there was failure on everyone's part there. There were a couple of really good teachers that kind of fought my corner a bit, both of whom I still talk to, even today. But I'm not going to say I don't regret it, because I can't change it. And in a weird way, it kind of shaped my path slightly differently, and then I had to take a longer route through education than I would otherwise have to. So I think it was actually really, really good for me. So I think in the long term, it worked its way out really, really well. I just sometimes wish I'd handled myself a bit better and had grown up quicker. And if I could go back and talk to my kind of 13-year-old self, I'd probably just tell him, it's okay, you'll, you'll get through this. Just reel it in a little bit. What kind of things were happening? Was it verbal abuse? Was it physical? It was pretty much verbal. It very, very rarely got physical. And it was all the, what I now refer to as the classics, kind of Elephant Man, Quasimodo, Hell of the Bells, all that kind of skullduggery. It is now kind of water off a dump's back. I, I now rank those on, on social media as like a two out of ten must try harder when people write it. But you're less well balanced when you're a teenager, I think. All anyone wants to do at that age is leave school and get laid. And outside of that, anything else is just an inconvenience that needs to be put to one side to focus on those two key objectives. Yeah, I just wish I'd calmed down a little bit. And if I'd have known then what I do know now. Mm. Did it have an impact on, I mean, in the sense that, did it affect how you felt about yourself? Did you feel sad or even depressed or can you remember crying over I, it yeah i got really angry i'm a big proponent of justice even as a young kid i was like quite geeky into my comics and the one strand that runs through any of the dc comics is this idea of justice be it actual justice or kind of the punishes vigilante justice either way it's kind of there and i was like this isn't fair and no one's doing anything and i can't figure out why and if I could have figured out why, I don't, I'd at least had some kind of resolution or understanding or had a finish to this train of thought, as opposed to all this stuff just going round and round, both in reality, in the day-to-day of the, the school playground. If you want to see Darwin's theory in perfect motion, the weak being consumed by the strong, look at any school playground up and down the country and then tell me Darwin's not onto something. But if I could have just gotten some kind of resolution... I reckon I'd have been a lot cooler with the whole thing. What kind of resolution could you have got? Like, what explanation is there? Maybe if I'd have known what the other people in it were going through, I think now, again, old and wiser, we know a lot more about mental health and that people who are bullies at school are probably being bullied themselves somewhere outside of those parameters. But also, high school's dumb. Just this whole social pecking order where all these girls walk around arm in arm and write bestest best friends forever 
on each other's books. And then on the last day, they hug, say goodbye, and then maybe see each other once a year after that. It's just a ridiculous popularity contest that ultimately doesn't matter. I think that's such a key message because I do think that I didn't have a particularly good experience at school either. Nothing compared to your experience. But I always used to resent it when people said to me, school days are the best days of your life. Because I was like, if these are the best days, I don't know what's going to happen next. And it's absolutely not been the case. Like my life has got better the older I've got. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast feel particularly lost in their 20s. And that that's a sort of confusing decade as well for slightly different reasons. Yeah. And I always want to say, maybe it's not going to be your decade, but that's fine because a later one will be. Like there'll be different patches of your life that will be for you. Completely. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wildcard where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Do you have a question about all things love, dating, sex, and relationships? Maybe you're happy in a relationship and want to hear other people's nightmare dating experiences. La 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 Let Me Explain is a qualified social worker and sex and relationships educator. And on her podcast, It's Not You, It's Them, But It Might Be You, La La answers listeners' questions around love, dating, parenting, and whatever they throw her way. It's Not You, It's Them, But It Might Be You is out on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Were you talking to your parents about what was going on? I mean, obviously they were being summoned to the school. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think communication is always really important in those kind of things. Because the more you can talk about it, the more you realise that you're, you're not alone and that other people have been through it as well. Bullying has always been a thing. I think with the advent of the online and social media, the delivery mechanism may have changed slightly. But those feelings of kind of loneliness or isolation or, or desperation are very much universal. And I think the more we get used to talking about them and the more we open ourselves up to talk about them. And I guess more than anything, I felt ashamed. I thought I, I thought I was better than this and that I was somehow more bulletproof and that I should be okay and that I'm not. And I think once you get over that, that inertia, and realise it's okay not to be okay, I think that's when you can start doing the heavy lifting that you have to. Do you still get bullied and do you still get people saying things in the street? I wouldn't say I, I, I get bullied. I think you can only get bullied if you allow yourself to, to be bullied. But yeah, people say things in the street. People say things online. Camera phones are the vein of my existence. But I have mastered the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And what strangers think of me or say about me is not, will not, and will never be my problem. They can live in their ignorance and I will move on with my life and never think about you again. That camera phone comment has really upset me. People take out their camera phones. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, sometimes do videos, sometimes take photos and they try and be subtle about it. I don't know how they can be subtle with phones as big as they are now. But, yeah. 
but you have to learn to delineate how much of it is kind of ignorance and how much of it is because I am off the telly. Mm. But people tend not to be subtle if it's an off the telly thing. People will kind of ask for the selfie. And people forget to turn their sound effects up on their phone when they try and do it kind of subtly for the, the voyeuristic purposes. And then you can make it really, really awkward. I'm a big fan of cranking up the awkward. <laughs> how do you do that? When I, when I know it happening. <laughs> what was it? I did that one time. Oh, I went up to a guy. I knew he'd done it, and I left it. And I was like, sorry, mate, the, the lighting's not very good over here. If we go over here, you'll get, like, a much better photo to show your mates when you, when you get home. We should do a video. We can shout out to your mum, and we hope she's proud of you, and all of that jazz. I know I'm proud of you. Oh, my goodness. And, and then people just like, no, mate, I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was like, well, open your photos. And I'm like, all right, I wasn't really sorry. I won't, I won't do it again. Yeah, God, I'm fucking right, you won't. And then all the kind of false apologies come out. And, and yeah, but I think it's important people feel the weight of their actions. Yeah, good for you calling it out. And I think sometimes it's important to do it in the moment as well, because otherwise you've lost that opportunity. What you say there about strangers and how they react to you not being your business, but being entirely a function of their ignorance and what is going on in their life is such a sophisticated and profound thought and very enlightened is part of the way you've been able to feel and think that by having certain key relationships in your life that you know you can go to, who know you as you really are, so your parents, your brother, how important is that to you? Oh, literally. I think having that kind of network to keep you grounded and keep you secure is crucial. Kind of people that know me, like like I know myself, I think knowing yourself is really important, knowing what kind of your identity is in, and kind of is it in who you are, what you do, and what you're doing in the world? Is it in stuff and, and the social media and, and the perishables? If it is, please have a very fast rethink. Or it kind of is it in kind of religion? Is your identity kind of like Christ, a deity, or another? And I've got a very good network of friends who are there for me, but also who, who kind of keep me grounded. So I like one of my friends, Dan's like, you might be famous, but you're still a prick. And I'm like, no, I, I need that. I'm really glad that I have that guy around to keep me there and then like my best friend Roxy is like my confidant who I tell everything and yeah I'm, I'm really really lucky I love that phrase the perishables social media appearance that idea that we set too much stock in the perishables mm-hmm. and they expire they have an expiry date amazing gonna use that gonna claim it as my own Adam there we go <laughs> copyright <laughs> I'm actually going to come on to your third failure next because that's the order I want to do it in. <laughs> no problem. Because uh, then there's some light relief at the end. But the next failure is that, in your words, you used to be terrible at advocacy. Correct. Because you saw everything as a battle. Yeah. This is fascinating. So tell me why that is and how you got into advocacy in the first place. I didn't come to advocacy. Advocacy came came to me. I never set out to change the world. When I, I left uni, it was all very anticlimactic, and everyone builds up graduating in, in their own heads that you'll walk out of that last exam. They'll eye the tiger or start blasting over a PA system. There'll be kind of fireworks, and an eagle will swoop down and hand you a contract for the job you want, and everything will happen. And as things stood, I did my last exam. It was raining. A bus had broken down outside of uni. A recession was about to happen. And it was all incredibly anticlimactic. And then I somehow fell into what I'm doing and became this 
I suppose, voice for the voiceless. I was one of the first people to face the segments to get like a proper Channel 4 gig. I did a lot of behind the scenes stuff for diversity at the BBC and gained the attention and respect of a lot of very important people very quickly. And I suddenly, I know, just got this platform and this voice that I had no idea how to use properly. And so then when you start doing this advocacy, you can take everything on and kind of slap your chest and shout, this is wrong, you must change. And that, as it turns out, tends to piss people off <laughs> a little bit. No one likes being told they're wrong. And I think I did see everything as a confrontation and an argument to be had and a battle to be won as opposed to a conversation to be had and learning to kind of lovingly correct people and steer them around to your way of thinking using love, facts and logic. Mm. And I think I've slowly gotten better at those kind of... Fern Cotton articulated this wonderfully in, in her interview with you. Learning those soft skills, learning those people skills. I had the facts, I had the figures, I had the academic research all day long as to why I was right. But I didn't have the soft skills to communicate it in a way that would get people on side. And you, you learn those by, I think, getting it wrong. Because I guess in, in many respects, you were still Adam Pearson, the teenager in the playground with your incredible verbal articulacy and your slapdowns. Like yeah. that, that was the most recent experience, I guess, that you'd had. Well, I had been to kind of uni and kind of and lost that edge and, and lost that bravado. Because was uni better? It was a positive, oh, more positive the, the experience? High, the higher up the education system you go, the more equipped they are to deal with difference. And I think people are there because they want to be. With, with secondary school, that's like a legal obligation. People are there because they have to be. And I don't think education is for everyone. Some people just don't learn in that way or in that kind of environment. Like, one of the guys I was at school with, who was actually quite rotten to me, but now we're actually really cool, in that academic environment, didn't do very well. Soon as you put him in a garage with, like, loads of broken cars and motorbikes, he excels. He, his eyes light up, he comes alive, and it's like he's a different person. So you're still in touch with him? Yeah, yeah. And have any of the bullies ever apologised to you? I, I fair few. Good. Yeah, yeah. And I, I will never judge anyone on the person they were when they were 16, ever. I think it's an unfair thing to do because I don't know who the hell I was when I was 16. And I don't think, even if you take disability and bullying and all that out of the equation, no one knows who the hell they are when they're 16. You're still trying to figure it out. Some people take a lifetime to figure out who they are. So in this advocacy role, we've spoken a bit about individual instances of prejudice and ignorance. But I know that it goes a lot deeper than that and it's a lot more institutional. So will you explain to people who don't have your experiences how ingrained prejudice and discrimination can be in our institutions? In three words. <laughs> <laughs> in three words. Get a grip. Um, I think it is. And I, I think when you're going to work tomorrow, walk around your office, walk around your place of work, do your daily commute. And just think, if I were partially sighted or, or in a wheelchair, would this work? What changes would need to be made to my day-to-day -day if, heaven forbid, I should be in an accident today, tomorrow, whenever, 
and need to use a wheelchair? Could I still get into my office? Could I still do my job? Would I have to start getting black cows everywhere instead of using the underground or driving? Would all my friends still want to hang out with me? Or so on and so forth. Just think about it and, and let it let it sit for a while. And if it feels uncomfortable, don't fight that. Let let it feel uncomfortable because that, that's okay. And just think about it and try and kind of empathize a little bit. And then take it from there. Do you think that our marginalisation of people who are, quote-unquote, not like us, mm-hmm. stems from fear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think it, I think it stems from anxiety. Whenever we're confronted with something different or other, we're instantly put on, on the back foot. And the sooner you can counteract that, counterbalance it by almost normalising it and having the conversations and, and explaining things... You get over difference for either explaining it or putting it out there for people to become accustomed to in their own way and in their own time. And if we can do that before it gets to fear, and then that fear later will become prejudice, the easier it gets. So how did you end up learning the soft skills necessary? I learned by doing it. I think you find yourself in, in the situations, and I also learned by watching other people doing it i think whatever you want to do find someone that does it exponentially better than you and just have the humility to sit under the learning tree and take it in and kind of respond to feedback as feedback criticism is there to help you it's not an attack it's not an affront it's not telling you you're wrong or a bad person well it's like failing it's helping you get better at it so i spent a lot of time just standing back watching other people do what I wanted to do and now do do a lot better than me. And even now, I'll, I'll still do that. I always say that if I'm the smartest person in a room, I'm in a shit room. <laughs> what are you proudest of? That is always a really hard question to have to answer. And this is going to sound incredibly, incredibly wanky. I, the achievement I'm always proudest of is the next one. I think if you put all your stock in the past then it makes it very hard to aim higher and so yeah you know mastermind absolutely took down the graduation photo put up the mastermind trophy rock on but then what's the next thing kind of what other walls need breaking down what other hurdles can i jump what have i been told i won't be able to do that i can now go out and do so the thing i'm most proud of is the next thing i'll do I love that your specialist subject was WWE. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I thought I'd keep it highbrow. What's the difference between WWE and WWF? They're the same thing. It's all wrestling, isn't it? Uh, well, WWF and WWE are the same thing. There was okay. a 10-year lawsuit between what was then the World Wrestling Federation and the World Wildlife Fund for the name because clearly people were getting confused. <laughs> they were meant to be saving pandas. They were buying steroids to Hulk Hogan. These things happen. <laughs> And there was a 10-year lawsuit, and then they just changed the name to World Wrestling Entertainment in 2001. And they ran this really clever campaign called Get the F Out, so that everyone could get used to the name change. If you were a wrestler, what would your name be? Oh, because they they don't like it when you use your real name, because they can't trademark it. And I don't know if I'd want to use, like, a kind of... Madam. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, Mr. Smash, because I... Those things are really, really ridiculous. 
I sprung that on you. I can come yeah, back no, to it at the end. It, it's a really, really hard thing. And, and I have thought about it because after Mastermind, I got and all these wrestlers started adding me on, on Twitter. So I've now got this like, bizarre network of NXT UK stars who I'm getting lunch with, which is like an insane one. And one of my other friends, Simon, is like a pro wrestler. I would probably call myself Tenny Chaos. Nice. I like I like alliteration. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It makes good t-shirts. It does. Excellent. Kenny Chaos. Okay, so Kenny Chaos, your third failure <laughs> is not your failure to be a WWE wrestler, but it is your failure at dating. I suck at dating. <laughs> I am so bad. Tell me the <laughs> IKEA story. <laughs> I really hope this wouldn't come up. Oh. So I used to date a really lovely Swedish girl called Amanda. And she'd come over from Sweden. For our first date, we went to the... I'm just near here, actually. The Vauxhall Theatre Tea House. And, and she loved that because she loves tea and, and cakes and all the kind of... They have knitted British, tea cosies there, British don't they? They yeah. do. It's adorable. And then for our second date, I thought... And I, I told people I was going to do this. I'd, I'd run this by people. This isn't just me in a moment of madness going, aha. I told people I was going to do this. And everyone went... That's amazing. You should definitely do that. Everyone. Not one person went. I wouldn't do that shit if I were you. I live in Croydon, so I'm quite nearby. I took her for lunch at Ikea. Because I thought she might be homesick. <laughs> but even I think that's quite a good idea. Yeah, I know. I, I, I love eating at Ikea. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. 60p for a hot dog. Bring it. <laughs> yeah. And she just glowered at me over lunch that I paid for. Going, you are not very funny today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did she also call it Ikea because that's the way you're meant to pronounce it in Swedish? No, 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 no. Okay. We didn't really talk about it afterwards. It was just a really awkward fan ride home. <laughs> so that relationship didn't work out, but how? No, it did not. <laughs> Why do you think you suck at dating more broadly? I think everyone sucks at dating. I think everyone's like really, particularly at the start of it, everyone's like really nervous. Everyone's like putting on a front and trying to be kind of their best then and eventually that facade slips and you work out that they're a dick and yeah so now I'm just very much kind of cards on the table kind of here is what to expect when you're dating me here is a computer game release schedule for 2020 marked in red are the dates that I might not be around as much are you okay with this no me either amazing see you later no I can do it I'm not good at it it's, it's a learning process and one girl and our cat died and apparently going oh it's okay we can get a new cat was the wrong thing to say in that moment like how how am i meant to know that it's it's a minefield i can't even i mean first dates are extremely awkward and i speak from personal experience but do you feel on a first date that you have to get the obvious stuff out of the way like do you feel like you have to have the conversation about this condition and what it's going to mean or do you try and go the other way and connect i try and connect and I, I all the dates i've been on i've very rarely gone on cold i've normally started out as friends with someone and then it's progressed kind of into dating you've gotten past all of that stuff and you've gotten to know them and you already have some kind of chemistry there i'm not a big proponent of dating apps have or, you ever or, tried or them? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I have an active Tinder account. I'm banned from eHarmony. Wait, hang on. 
you're banned yeah. from eHarmony. Yeah. Okay, please tell me that <laughs> whole story. Well, I went on that and I perused. And on any profile, it's, I like a man with a sense of humour. So I thought, all right, literally me. <laughs> Nailed this. <Let's> do this. <laughs> and you had to answer all these questions. It was, what would you look for in a woman? And I wrote as a joke, my dick. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's the <laughs> Okay. And apparently yeah. <laughs> they dropped the bad hammer. No one found it funny. <laughs> no. so, You've already enjoyed that far more than the moderators in e Harmony did. So, did, so then did they, how do they get in touch with you to ban? Do they email you and say... Yeah, yeah, your okay. profile has been deactivated. Oh, Adam, that's hilarious. Christian Mingle, my photos don't get through their facial recognition software. So that's, that's a bugger. Wow. I know. What's Tinder been like? Have you ever had a successful date off Tinder? Yeah, several. Oh, great. Several. I really, I really like Tinder because everyone knows what they're getting. I used to have this thing where I sort of didn't take Tinder seriously for a while. I still don't, to a degree. I think it's a bit of a joke where I, you get a match and I'd message them going, sat penguins. And they'd reply going, what? And I'd be like, thought I'd say something to break the ice. And <laughs> <laughs> Sammy 48 has blocked you. <laughs> but how much do you use, I'm going to use a very cod psychology question here, but how much is your humour a defence mechanism? And how much do you think that means that when you date, people can't get to know you? I don't think it's a defence mechanism. I think it's a communication thing. Again, I think it makes people feel, feel very comfortable. And also, if I can joke about my disability, it makes them feel more comfortable around it because they know I'm not one of these kind of uppity disabled guys. I'm not disabled, I'm handicapable, or whatever the, the wanky terms are nowadays. Humour really puts people at ease. I'm actually just still laughing about eHarmony. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I know. You were saying all of this important stuff and I can't yeah, stop no. thinking about it. <laughs> Take it in. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's a pure communication thing. I think at one point in time it may have been a, a defence mechanism, but now I just think it's a really good way of communicating with people and making relationships more human. And I think we take things like this way too seriously. And I think there's a time and a place for it. But I think laughter is a really important thing. And I think we all need to learn to do it more in any situation. When was your last relationship? Or have you had anything that you categorise as a relationship? I haven't been in a relationship for a couple of years now. Because I have been like really busy with work and stuff. And whenever I get into a relationship, I'm always really wary that they then become Adam Pearson's girlfriend. And the last thing I want to do is subject someone I love to this tabloid ring circus of kind of, oh, Adam Pearson's girlfriend, Beauty and the Beast, and what have you. Because I end up clapping back and going, don't call my girlfriend a beast, but thank you for the compliment, I'm beautiful. And yeah, I also kind of want to, A, protect them from it, but also not be a distraction for them mm. as well. Even with my family, I'm like really, really protective. Like whenever I do something, my mum will get all these courier telegrams from women's magazines asking for interviews. And I'm forever phoning, kind of take a break or chat, telling them to leave my fucking family alone. And they, they don't do it anymore. I think the message has finally, finally gotten in that you don't approach my mum without my, my express permission. And I still go out there and kind of put myself out there and, and what have you. And I'm not backward and coming forward. And, and I, I, I'm not as bad as I used to be at dating. 
Do your parents want you to meet someone? I don't think they care. I think my mom's like, please, I have grandchildren. (laughs) (laughs) I think as long as I'm happy, they're happy. I'm really fascinated by twins, and I'm sure you get asked about this all the time as well. (laughs) But do you and Neil feel each other's feelings like, and have you had that experience of like having the same dream or one yeah. of you's twisted your ankle and the other one's had the pain of it one time someone punched me in the head and my fist really hurt but out, outside of that really because i was because you were the one yeah yeah because it was my fist that was oh, the, uh, Adam. Now, now i've explained it it's funnier <laughs> um no i think guy twins are very different from girl twins i think the emotion thing is because one of my best friends roxy is a twin and her and her sister George have that all the time. Kind of know each other's feelings. One time, Roxy had been in Australia for six months. George went to meet at the airport. And they bought each other the same present to give each other at the airport. How does that work? How are you so in tune that that happens? And I was like, oh, that's adorable. And but me, me and Neil don't, don't have that. We, we get on, and that's fine. And we're incredibly competitive. Like incredibly competitive. So he's he's like, Oh, I've got a real I've got a real job. He's got like a nine to five job or like a proper job, as my as my parents call it. And I'm like, I won mastermind. <laughs> Booyah, like, yeah. as you would Where, say. Where's your comeback now? Son? <laughs> what what? Adam Pearson, do you feel successful? I think I do. Yeah. And I think how we measure success in country is very arbitrary. And I think if you're measuring success by money, you're onto a dangerous road. Because then you could be the kind of the richest man in the graveyard and no one would care. Whereas I think it's the implicit duty of every human to leave this world a better place than when they left it. And I think if you can do that, and I do this a lot when I do school assemblies. I would always sit down with young people and I'm like, right, imagine the best life you can lead. Now write your own obituary for that life. And then that way you'll know what you're striving for and what the legacy you want to leave is. And that's what you should be shooting for. The money, the cars, the fame, all that jazz is great, but it's not the thing. For me, kind of fame, quote unquote, is a very fortunate byproduct of being very good at what I do and being a good campaigner, a good bloke and being that kind of voice to the voiceless, almost. I think at at this stage in life, my job is to give a voice to people who might not be able, for one reason or another, to speak for themselves. And if that doesn't make me any money, it doesn't make me any money. And I'm okay with that. Hey, you can always go to Ikea for lunch. It's very cheap. It is very cheap. Adam Pearson, should I say Kenny Chaos... You leave my world better for being part of it. Thank you. I cannot thank you enough for the beautiful way you have with words and with life. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.